0: Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thrizer and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 124 of Selling the Couch. Uh, it's so good to be with you. I feel good. I, you know, as you may or may not know, I took a little bit of a break from podcast episodes in June. That's something that I've just scheduled in just for mainly for the sake of sanity and self-care. So we're uh, two weeks in and I feel good and excited to share just new episodes with you and just new conversations. Today's podcast conversation is with a private practitioner, Daniela Tempesta. She's a licensed clinical social worker out in San Francisco, And this is probably like an understatement, but she has an amazing story of she started in private practice just soon after graduation, found out some just really unexpected news with her mom, decided to close her private practice, started a new business, closed the business, restarted private practice, and now she has a successful practice. And Danielle had reached out and uh, to share this story with me. She actually wrote about this whole process in a New York Times article, which I'll share here in the show notes. But Danielle reached out to me and to share this story. And I just thought, my gosh, what Talk about the resiliency and the courage of the human spirit for all of us, right? We're building small businesses, and the reality is life doesn't pause, right? And life happens. So how do you continue to build a business when we are faced with adversity of all different kinds? So I will get right to today's conversation because it's so good. And I hope more than anything, it just encourages you uh, to think what to do when there is adversity in your life. Before we do get to today's conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Perry and the team over at Brighter Vision for supporting this month's podcast. Uh, Brighter Vision is this company that works just with our field to help us create beautiful private practice websites. You can learn about the work they do over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash brighter vision. And if you go through that link, you get the first month absolutely free. So uh, we'll get right to today's conversation. So here's my conversation with Daniela Tempesta from Daniela dot com. Hi, Daniela. Welcome to selling the couch.
1: Hi, Melvin. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here.
0: I'm excited for our conversation. I'm just uh, so grateful that you reached out because you have, I mean, we all have stories, right? And then, but you have this story that's just, I don't know, it's amazing, and it's courageous, and it's sad, and it's like, it's all of those things put together in many ways. Well, thank you. I wanted to start we'll definitely talk more about your story. But I actually wanted to start on with your private practice website, because the way that you share on your private practice website, and just I told you this, you know, before we got started, but like, it's just there's so much care in how you crafted your private practice website. And I wanted to actually start with your about page, because it's just so beautiful. And then I just wanted to ask you about that. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay, so uh, your about page, you know, starts out, it says, everyone has a story. Here is a summary of mine so far. The beginning, I was born in the Bay Area to a first generation Italian father and second generation Italian mother. I spend my childhood assisting my mother in her entrepreneurial ventures and observing my father dynamically entertaining his students in the classroom. Like both of my parents, I was born a doer, a nurturer, and an enthusiastic helper. Whether I was counseling my peers in high school or volunteering with nonprofits, I was always drawn to being actively engaged in service to others. How do you think your parents and just you growing up, how do you think those shaped you and helped you as a private practitioner?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my family definitely had a huge Influence on me, but both of my parents for sure, but especially my mom. When I was three years old, she actually started her very first business from our kitchen. And um, she bootstrapped her way from a single mom just trying to, you know, pay the bills and put dinner on the table to running a successful multi million dollar business. And this was in the early 80s when there weren't a lot of women business owners. So the cards were really, you know, stacked against her. And so I had the opportunity to watch her, you know, build this amazing business with all of its challenges. And, you know, I spent my afternoons and my summers at her bakery and I just, I looked up to her so much. And I always saw, you know, the sacrifices she made and the risks she was willing to take. And even though there were people who said she couldn't do it, she pushed ahead anyway. And I think it just inspired me so much and always, you know, taught me to dream big and to you know, push past my fear. I think it really helped me believe in myself and know that one day I wanted to be an entrepreneur and a business owner too. And to follow in her footsteps in that way. And I think, you know, one of the things I really observed in her too was just this idea that like you don't have to have it all figured out before you start. You know, she didn't know what she was doing. She was just (laughs) sort of putting one foot in front of the other. And I think sometimes, especially those of us who can be a little, you know, oriented towards perfectionism. Mm -hmm. We want to get it all right and we want to figure it all out ahead of time and I think it, it was helpful to observe her and kind of seeing like you know sometimes we can just have a plan but also you can figure it out along the way and that really inspired me I think in in even just starting my own practice and following that dream of continuing to be of of service to people. So that was hugely influential for me.
0: It's an amazing thing, I think, to grow up seeing someone modeling that. And by the way, I have no idea what you're talking about with the perfectionism thing. It's not
1: (laughs) (laughs) right, right. I know. It's just me.
0: (laughs) You know, I, I do like, I think what you said is absolutely true, though, like, so many of us in the field, and I think because we're like natural learners, and we really do want to do a good job. But I think not just starting a practice, but in expanding to services, or expanding to different niches or giving a talk or whatever it is, right? Like I think many times we do let that fear, right of or just that desire to get it just right yes. even, you know, stop us from starting, I guess
1: absolutely and then there's so much information out there and we can kind of get stuck in you know information overload and analysis paralysis and it's important to find the balance between being well informed and taking action
0: yeah i mean i imagine that you still like you deal with this like much like all of us do right where there's a bunch of information there's a bunch of dreams that you have like for you like how do you kind of move through that space of not wanting to, of just, I guess, moving forward without letting that perfectionism or letting just the creativity kind of go on overwhelm?
1: You know, I really try to focus on my values and what I want in the long term. You know, that I always ask myself the question, when I'm 80 years old, and I'm looking back on my life, what are going to have been the experiences that are most important to me and that I think create a meaningful life and that I will feel regret about if I don't do them. And I try to let those things, you know, be the carrot, be the thing that I move towards as opposed to be driven by my fear. And, you know, let's be clear. It's not that I don't have those same fears and that it doesn't cripple me at times. You know, it's so real. We all have it. But I think I really try to stay focused on my values and let that be in the driver's seat of my decision making. And that sometimes means tolerating the discomfort of the unknown and and the uncertainty around it. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Just shifting a little bit. Uh, So you went to you got your master's at Stanford and uh, did your MSW. And actually, uh, just to
1: clarify, I did my undergrad at Stanford and my master's at USC.
0: Got it. Good to clarify. (laughs) So after graduation, you opened up your own private practice, which is amazing (laughs) to have that kind of courage. You got married. And then uh, you got some pretty crazy news. And I believe it was on your honeymoon that you got this news.
1: Right, yeah. It was just a few days after my wedding, and I was in Italy with my new husband. And I had a phone call with my mom during which she told me that she was sick. And she didn't know at the time yet what exactly was going on, but knew that there was some you know, problems with her liver and that it was quite serious. And a couple of weeks later, upon my return from my honeymoon, we found out that she actually had stage four breast cancer.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it was pretty shocking that, you know, just a few weeks before she had been dancing with me at my wedding. And now, you know, we had this news, my whole world just felt like it got turned upside down. I don't even know, like, what did you do? Like, in that moment,
0: like, you come back, you see your mom, you know, like, you see her dreams, you see your dreams, like,
1: you know, I think it was hard to even process in a way, like, it didn't seem real. And you know, of course, I'd seen other people navigate things like this in their lives. But I think naively, you kind of go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not going to happen to me. And so I think it was honestly really difficult to even process that it was happening. But, you know, I just sort of, I guess, being a natural (laughs) helper, I sort of went into super caretaker mode and just was there with my mom every step of the way trying to, you know, help her fight this and and survive. And unfortunately, things were just, you know, too far progressed. And, you know, she passed less than, you know, three months after our wedding date, actually.
0: And we alluded to this earlier, your mom had built a very successful bakery. Bakery was Bancora. You wrote this on your website, like, at the time the bakery was operating at a loss, you knew nothing about running this bakery, yet some part of you wanted to carry that forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my mom had, you know, sold her first business, the one I kind of mentioned earlier in the interview and when I was much younger. But, you know, she went back out and started another business later on. And it was just something she cared about deeply. And and, and it was a young business at that point, And so, like you said, it was still operating at a loss and uh, was sort of uh, the trajectory was unclear. And, um, you know, I asked her, Mom, what do you want me to do with the business? And she said, you know, whatever you want. She didn't pressure me one way or the other. But I just felt like if I didn't give it a try to try to keep this business alive and step in and do this thing that she cared about so much that I might always wonder and I might always regret it. So, and I think it was also a way for me to try to stay connected to her, even though she was gone, which was, you know, something I was navigating grief for the first time in my life. And I had no idea, you know, how to do that. And so it it felt like a way to stay connected to her and really understand her. So I decided to jump into something that I literally had no idea how to do. You know, she, of course, I grew up observing her, but you know, I never actually, you know, worked with her in her business, and it had no interest in the food industry, actually, whatsoever. And so this was a big leap for me.
0: So this was really just driven, it sounds like, just a desire to honor her. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And try to see if I could keep that legacy of hers alive in a certain way.
0: So I guess, give us a little bit of a time frame. So she passed away three months after the wedding. And then when did you make that decision to to go into the bakery and support the bakery?
1: So, I basically sort of had to right away in order to keep it going, but I actually still was running my practice at the same time and grieving. I honestly, I look back on it and it's like, I don't even know how I did it. So, you know, I was still seeing clients and I was, you know, trying to run this business. And I actually sort of did it somehow for a while. I think we just go into like survival mode and pure adrenaline. I had reduced my client load to, you know, one day a week, but even that started to feel like too much. So, about probably, you know, six months after my mom or maybe eight months after my mom passed, I closed my practice entirely and gave up my lease and handed all my clients over to my colleagues and, you know, kind of put my full attention into running the bakery. How
0: long did you end up running the bakery for?
1: I ran it for about a year and a half. And at which point I realized that um even though I was learning a ton and it actually, helped me actually get better at facing my fears and tolerating that uncertainty of just doing something that I had zero expertise in. And, and it brought out some parts of my personality that, you know, I didn't necessarily get to utilize as much in my private practice. You know, I'm definitely an extrovert and I love public speaking. And, you know, I got to do a lot of sort of, you know, demos and presentational things with the business, which was super fun. And it was great to kind of see those other parts of my personality come out. But in the end, it just it wasn't my dream. It was hers. And I knew it was time to kind of come back to doing the thing that I really cared about.
0: I I think for me, like if I were in your shoes, like I would be so torn because like on one hand, I would think like this is not my dream. But then I would still feel like, am I like losing mom or, you know, like is Mm -hmm. there sort of this element of like... I don't know, like not honoring her anymore.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Melvin, my goodness, this decision was heart wrenching for me. And it honestly took me like probably six months to make. It was really difficult. And I really grappled with the idea of sort of like feeling like I was abandoning something that was hers or kind of, you know, letting go of her legacy. And I think, you know, I had to ultimately come to a place where I realized that her legacy wasn't about the bakery. It was about who she was as a person and the kind of mother that she was and all of those things were a part of me and would continue to, you know, live through me without me having to run this business. But it was a hard fought battle to get there.
0: Yeah, no, I feel like, you know, a lot of our colleagues, I think on a different level struggle with is whether it's a a situation like you're describing, or maybe like a practice has been passed to them, right? Like it's sort Mm -hmm. of generation to generation. And or maybe it's you know like and they want to take the practice in a different way. I like the way that you sort of like tease that out. You know, like the bakery was one part, right? It didn't represent right. her. Yeah, which is so key because I think I don't know. Like I would think like in those initial stages, those two things overlap so much. You, it's hard to tease that out.
1: Absolutely, it was very difficult, but I think you know in the end, it actually it strengthened in a lot of ways. A lot of the work that I do with clients, because I think I really try to help clients get clear on what their dream is and what their purpose is. And so often they're living somebody else's dream or they're just sort of following a prescribed life that maybe they feel like is right, but isn't really connected to their values or who they are. So I think it strengthened my resolve and my commitment to not only in doing that myself, but supporting others in doing that.
0: I wanted to ask you, like, so you did this Bancora for a year and a half. What do you think you learned running Bancora that actually made you a better private practitioner?
1: Yeah, a lot. Um, You know, I think, (laughs) you know, one thing is that I just definitely like have a better understanding for The complexities and the stress of being an entrepreneur, which I think has really supported my work with my clients. You know, I, my practice is in San Francisco. I'm in the hub of, you know, Silicon Valley and tech world. And so many of my clients are founders or entrepreneurs. And I really love, you know, supporting those folks as they move through their journey. And this has definitely given me a much better understanding of of what it takes to run a business and, and to just understand the stresses involved. So I think that that was, you know, helpful. But I think, you know, even more so, I really learned the ins and outs of just running a small business. And I think, you know, in the past, things like, you know, managing employees, or even just silly things like running payroll would have been super daunting to me. But having had experienced them in this other setting, I felt a lot more equipped to take them on in private practice. I mean, it's been helpful because I actually have grown my practice recently. You know, I've brought on another practitioner to join me and hoping to continue to grow. But I think it's made some of those, you know, transitions easier because I had some experience and they didn't feel so scary. Like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Like, what's payroll, you know? (laughs) And, you know, I think I also learned the importance of outsourcing to experts to create efficiency in business, which was something I had to do in the other business. I just was so stretched for time. And Mm. I think as therapists, a lot of us try to do everything ourselves, And we try to do it all, but first of all, I don't think that's necessarily the best use of our time often. And it can also be a little penny wise pound foolish because our time is best spent with our clients or whatever other, you know, business ventures we're working on doing, you know, our blogs or podcasts or whatever it is to scale our business. And I think it's really a great investment to pay people to do the things you don't have time to do and, and aren't, you know, an expert in. So, for example, as soon as I reopened my practice this time, I hired a bookkeeper. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that anymore. You right. know, I'm going to let somebody else do that and I'm going to take that time to kind of commit back into my business. So I think it made things like that a lot easier for me because I had a better understanding of them and also the kinds of efficiencies they created.
0: Like, I love the way you're talking about it because like one of the things, and I have struggled with this to no end as well because I want to try to do everything, but yeah. like, And I mean, I'll be completely honest, like when I started selling the couch, I was doing everything. And the problem was, I was so stressed out at home. And I was just like a miserable person to my wife. Right. right? And I was like, at some point, I think I just either she told me enough times or I just realized it Probably both. But it's like, you don't start a small business to like, become like a slave to something else, you know? Yeah, right. right. Yeah, you're looking
1: for some freedom. Right.
0: And... I think like, and you're saying this, which is like, it's so important because for us as private practitioners, where we do come from a service-based profession, right? The natural tendency will always be to work in our business versus on our business.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's very well put. And I think it's hard to break that, that mm-hmm. chain because we go, well, it's okay. I can do it. I can do it. You know, <laughs> But it's sort of like, yeah, you can do it, but should you be doing it is the question.
0: Yeah, right. And I think that is the best way. So, I guess for you like on the day-to-day running of a practice, like how do you sort of distinguish between those tasks, like the tasks that are better to delegate versus the ones you need to work on?
1: Well, you know, I, I try to think about, you know, clients first. That to me is why I do this. That, you know, I want to be there to support others. And so anything that interferes too much with my ability to create more time for my clients, I think is something that I say like, you know, needs to kind of hopefully go in the pile of things that I can hopefully, you know, outsource. And sometimes outsourcing even just means like finding some technology or an app or something else that just helps you organize it better and does some of the work for you like a practice management software or something like that and not like you know me schlepping around my paper files like <laughs> i did for a long time right um, so it doesn't
0: always have to be like a physical person you outsource it right to. right
1: yeah but just efficiencies things that kind of make it simpler and i think even with that i was hesitant at first like i oh, don't know i don't want to have to learn this software i don't need that but it's like oh my god it's made my life so much easier
0: yeah so it's almost like the idea of like spending a couple of hours at the onset, even though that can be painful, it could save hundreds, probably, right, of hours, if not thousands of hours in the long run.
1: And money, you know, I mean, time is money. And I'm thinking if this is an hour a week that I'm spending doing this, that I could be seeing a client. I think in the end, the cost really, it works out in your favor to outsource those things.
0: So you closed down your practice, and then you said you reopened your practice. Right. Uh, So... Amazing, by the way,
1: but thank you.
0: I wanted to ask you, like, what would you say are like, I guess, three big takeaways, things that you learned in that first round of private practice that you took with you to that second round so that you didn't make those same mistakes over?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, this was a lesson that was sort of learned very slowly for me the first time around, but I think really made a difference the second time around, which is to find your niche and really develop it and to not be afraid to narrow your scope. I think as young clinicians, we're just excited and we just want to fill our practices. We're nervous, too, about how are we going to make this work? And so we kind of leave ourselves open to trying to see like anybody and everybody, you know, I'll go on psychology today sometimes and I'll see these folks who literally have like every single diagnosis and every treatment modality checked off. And I'm thinking like, hmm, that that doesn't seem too likely, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's unrealistic to think that as therapists, we can be super skilled in everything. And so I think it's so important to really get clear on who is it that we want to serve And to really try to speak to those clients and to try to establish ourselves as experts in that particular niche. I think that the more specific we get, the more we, A, attract the the people that we want. But B, I think the more desirable we become to those people because, you know, now they feel really strongly about seeing us because we've established ourselves as an expert in that area and somebody who really speaks to them and their specific concern that they're going through. So while, you know, it can feel like you're kind of limiting yourself, I think it's the opposite. I think it's something that actually helps you really grow your business quite quickly. So that would probably be the first, you know, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit and kind of just what I learned observing my mom, but, you know, I think I really also learned this in private practice the first time around too, which is sort of that, you know, success requires some risk. It's not always going to feel safe and comfortable. And it also requires some hustle. You know, I mean, I left a full-time agency job with a predictable income and health insurance to open my practice. And it was super scary. And, you know, I had to, for a little while, I had like, I think like two clients and I was working two other part-time jobs and it was a lot to take on, but it was so worth it. And I think if I had let fear be in the driver's seat, I would have never taken the leap. I'd still be at like a, you know, an agency job that, you know, made me miserable. So I think with every new phase of of your career as you kind of try to scale or push to the next level, that that fear will creep in and and it will require some risk. And I think I really learned that, you know, just really to get to the next level, you have to be willing to tolerate some of that uncertainty. And also that, you know, you're going to fall flat on your face sometimes when you take those risks. And in a way, I actually see that as a success as well, because it's a sign that you're pushing yourself towards Something bigger, you know, and that road is inevitably bumpy when we decide to push ourselves. So some of the falls aren't necessarily a sign of failure; they're a sign that you're pushing towards something amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great way of distinguishing because I do think, at least for me, like I know one of the things I struggle with is I see it very dichotomous, right? Like either I succeed or I or I fail. Right. right. And there's, I don't know, this may be really like cliche, but I feel like the only failure is in not trying, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think that is something that I always, you know, kind of talk to myself (laughs) about and talk to my clients about about sort of like, you know, what will it feel like if we never try Mm. any of those things? And I think in a way that in the end, will end up sort of feeling like the biggest regret, or maybe even the biggest failure. Mm. But doesn't mean it's not scary. But I agree with you. I think the biggest failure can in the end be, you know, not trying at all.
0: So, niching success requires risk. Yeah,
1: and I think, you know, the other thing is that I think I thought a lot about is Building your brand and your image as your therapist is important, right? I mean, you have to establish credibility and you need to get your name out there. But I also think that some of the best PR you can do for your practice happens in your office. Mm. I think it's important not to forget that, that you know, focusing on doing excellent work with your clients really is one of the best investments in your business. And sometimes maybe instead of spending your money on Google AdWords, maybe pay to go to a consultation or go to some more trainings and get support in your cases. For me, 85% of the referrals I get are straight from current or former clients. Hmm. And that's what keeps my business, you know, alive and thriving. And I think with so many options for how we can promote ourselves now, it's awesome. But I think we can also get caught up in it. And I think it's important to like remember that balance of like, you know, definitely we have to do that. It's part of just being a business owner, but also to remember to really like, Focus our attention on the work we do with the clients, and I think some of the best PR can really come from from those moments. Hmm.
0: Daniela, not at all to put you on the spot, but like uh, you have such a, a cool niche, right? Like you work primarily with millennials, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like this is always this interesting conversation. Even I've struggled with this, which is so you chose to focus on a population, right? Yeah. So how did you choose to focus on a population versus like a presenting concern, like? I don't know high conflict couples for
1: example. Sure. Yeah, I mean I think it grew a little bit organically and like I said when I first started I sort of cast a wide net and was seeing, you know, a lot of of everybody, but I found that the sessions I spent with my millennials, you know, who primarily were struggling with anxiety a lot of really high achieving folks who were struggling with perfectionism and imposter syndrome, and and also just a lot of existential anxiety, sort of like, who am I and who do I want to be? And how come I have all the things I think I should want, but I'm still unhappy? You know, Mm -hmm. I felt like that was where the energy was. For me, I felt so alive in those sessions. And I felt so interested in what was going on and in helping those folks that for me, it was like, okay, I want more and more of these clients. And, and you know, I mean. I never quite understand where the cutoff is, but I think technically I'm a millennial as well, (laughs) you know, or, you know, close in age range at least. And so I think I had been going through some of those struggles myself. I really, you know, related and I understood and, you know, I had some life experience of what I had learned and trying to navigate some of that stuff and still, you know, trying to navigate it. But I think I just, there felt like so much energy in the work that I really paid attention to that and said, okay, this is what I really want to focus my attention on.
0: I think finding something that drives you and energizes you uh, its not just helpful in the therapy room, but it impacts everything, right? Like from website copy to the online profiles we create and all of those things.
1: Absolutely. And I'll tell you, when I reopened my practice, it was a little scary again to kind of be like, okay, I'm going to really focus this time on this niche. And I'm going to really kind of narrow my focus. And I'm going to speak directly to it on my website. And hmm, that might turn some people off. But I have to tell you, I get so many emails from folks saying, I read your website and oh my God, I felt like you were in my head or I felt like you were Mm -hmm. explaining exactly who I am. And so they felt so connected to it because I was speaking directly to them. And I think you know that made them feel much more comfortable and ready to come see me because of that. So I do think it was helpful, even though it felt a little risky.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is, If you end up speaking to everyone, you end up speaking to no one.
1: Totally. It's so true.
0: And I think that is like you alluded to it, which I think that is the common pull of the private practitioner. And I, I can imagine not even at the beginning, like not just at the beginning, but like even at various points, it's like, should I be going broad? Should I be going broad? Right? Like, Right. But yeah, I think sometimes we forget what it's like to be from the other, the potential client perspective, you know?
1: Yeah. Exactly. And to feel like that safety of like, I'm in good care, in good Mm. hands, this person really understands and cares deeply about what I'm going through. Right.
0: I wanted to end with one of your mom's quotes uh, that you cited in a beautiful blog post she wrote for the New York Times. You said that you have a lot of your mom's quotes on uh, framed. And Mm -hmm. uh, you have this quote, it says, your mom said, you have to feel really strongly about it. She said in reference to owning a business, it needs to be more than a good idea. You have to have this gut feeling, an inner voice that says you've got to do this. I've always listened to those voices.
1: Yeah, I came across that quote actually right in the midst of trying to make my decision about whether or not to close the bakery or, or rather to, you know, kind of leave it behind from my end so I could go back to my practice. And for me, it was the wake up call and it was a reminder to stop trying to live her dream and to go back to my own and to go back to listening to my own internal voices that mm. were driving me in a certain direction. And, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it also really inspired me to go back and help other people mm. do the same. We often ask the question, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Hmm. But I actually ask my clients a different question, very much inspired by this quote from my mom, which is, what would you do even if you knew you would fail? In other words, like what lights you up that much? What is that one thing that if you didn't try, you would always wonder about or you might always regret? And let's focus some energy on that. And in a way, that's sort of what I did with, with Boncora. I was a sort of I had this pull inside of me that said, man, if I don't try this, I might always regret it. And you know what? In the end, it didn't turn out to be my life's work, but that's okay, You know, it gave me so much more energy and new tools and insights to go back and do that thing that for me was worth failing for, which is, you know, my practice and my commitment to being of service to others. And so I think it really helped push me in the right direction in making that decision and also to keep in mind as I support others and doing the same in, in their life. So that was a pretty pivotal moment for me, like reading that quote and just kind of let, letting it integrate and influence my next steps. Daniela,
0: thank you so much for doing this and uh, grateful for you. Grateful just for your courage, I think, to go through any sort of circumstances, much less something like the what you went through and to be where you are. is just, it's amazing. And it like, I think speaks to the just the resiliency and the courage of the human spirit.
1: Well, thank you so much, Melvin. It was an honor to get to share my story with you and to, to be here with you. And yeah, to even have a moment to reflect on my own journey. Mm. And thank you for saying the thing about resilience. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Where can folks that are interested in knowing more about you, where can we connect with you?
1: Sure, yeah. People can find me on my website, which is Daniela dot com. That's Daniela with one L D A N I E L A L C S W dot com and can learn more about my services and my offerings. And also I have a contact form on my contact page so people can just shoot me a message right through there on my website.
0: Awesome. I'll definitely put it in the show notes, Daniela. Um, great. have a great rest of your day and thank you again.
1: Oh, you too, Melvin. Thank you so much.
0: Hey gang, hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniela, and I hope that it's given you a sense of clarity and just bigger than more than anything, I think, a sense of hope. No matter where you are in your private practice journey, I I don't know, as during that conversation with Daniela, I mean, to be honest, like I was like fighting tears because it's just I don't know, it's amazing. I think the human spirit, but like I don't know if I would have the courage to do something like that, but. Danielle, it's amazing to see how you gave up something you loved to pursue something to honor someone that you loved even more and then ultimately find your way back. So we're just so grateful for you. Daniela's website is again at danielalcsw.com and I encourage you to check it out because just everything from sort of the the website copy, how she writes to her ideal clients, to the use of white space, right? So not filling up a a website with just a bunch of graphics and stuff like that. I just think Daniela does that so well. So uh, definitely check it out. Daniela actually also offers one-on-one coaching for entrepreneurs. And you can learn more about that on her services page on her website. And so if as a private practitioner, I feel like Danielle has a unique experience, right? Because she's a private practitioner and she's owned a business outside of private practice. So if you're kind of struggling with figuring out sort of your mission, your values, trying to figure out niching, all of those things and and trying to figure out even what Daniela talked about with what your strengths are, maybe what you should outsource. Definitely check out the services that she provides and hopefully it gives you some clarity. And I know that it will show notes to today's episode and uh, some of the key points that Daniela talked about. Um, I wrote those down for you so you can find them at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number one Two, 4. And as we wrap up, I, again, I just wanted to thank the team over at Brighter Vision for supporting today's podcast session. Brighter Vision is, again, this company that works with just private practitioners. And their goal is to study what's working in terms of websites. And they do a lot of analysis. They study thousands and thousands of sites. They work with lots of our colleagues in the field to help create a private practice website. And not only that, but to manage it on a month to month basis, which I know when we're uh, speaking of trying to work in our business versus on that can feel overwhelming when we do have 10 or 100 different things going on. So again, you can learn more about their services at sellingthecouch.com the slash brighter vision. And again, that link right there gives you the first month absolutely free. Have a great rest of your week, and uh, before I do wrap up, I uh, wanted to give you guys just a quick update on the Selling the Couch directory. So one of the things I've been working on this past year is a directory that's meant just for helpers and healers in private practice, a directory that I, I hope will make it easier to connect and collaborate, and for supervisors to find supervisees, and supervisees to find supervisors, and for us to be able to consult And with folks that have expertise and when we have cases and things like that that are difficult, it's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of fun, sometimes a little overwhelming Uh, trying to figure out this new technology. But if you would like to learn more about it, uh, you can go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash directory. Have a great rest of your day and take good care. Bye.